Hi, friends. So happy to be here. Um, I have a question for you. A couple of times in this video, and, and then Pastor Jamie said it, that we this is a safe space to talk about Jesus. Why do we need a safe space to talk about someone like Jesus? Because we've made it so, so unsafe for so long. How do we do that? By getting him wrong. By getting Jesus wrong. We just, as humanity, we are inclined to get Jesus wrong. It's understandable. He's invisible and we're not. It's always interesting to me how God makes no apology for being invisible. It would be so nice of him to solve that for us, but he doesn't. He doesn't wring his hands like, oh no, they can't see me. What am I going to do? Send Jesus. That's what he did. And so this series, Humankind, is looking at the reality of Jesus, his interactions with humanity, and what we find from those, the gold that we have in looking at these uh, interactions between Jesus and humans. We find so much about his character, his heart, his love, what makes him mad, what makes him glad, what makes him dance, what makes him all the things. And when we see what Jesus is like, we also see who? His father. All of Jesus is in God. All of God is in Jesus. We get a clear picture. Why do we need a clear picture? Because they had gotten him wrong. Society for generations had gotten God wrong. They had wrong concepts. That's what we're going to see in our story today. They had wrong ideas about who God was, and we have them too. We have embedded ideas that are not cool about who God is, and those ideas keep us back. In fact, keep us back. In fact, in some ways, those ideas keep us blind to the truth of who he is and the truth of who we are. And so we're going to look at a passage today from the gospel of John. John is without any question, without any close second, my favorite writer of all time, anywhere. This will never change. The apostle John is my favorite. And he writes this gospel at probably around the age of 90. And, you know, I know we like to say age is just a number, but it actually isn't. Age is reflective of a lot of things. In fact, yesterday I spoke at a girls' conference, and it was ages about 13 to 18 or 20. And I was up in the green room, and I heard worship start, so I came down. And I walked into a room, and I don't know why, it was just jarring to me. I wasn't prepared for for the youngness in the room, I was, these were just darling, beautiful, wonderful little women. They were so passionate and they were worshiping and they were in their sneakers and their sweatshirts and they have their arms and their tears are streaming and they're singing, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I felt so old, so, so old. But then last week, I went to visit my parents, and they live in a retirement community. And there is a woman in their community who walks the loop around their neighborhood every day. It is a mile long, and she has a a walker, and she says, my name is Harriet, and this is my chariot. I kid you not. She is 100 years old. And I felt super spry, young, spry, energetic, passionate. But my parents are people who have seen a lot. They lived through the depression and some wars, political ups and downs, changes in the church. They lived through 
60 years of marriage, raising three daughters. They live through a lot. And so when my parents say, and they do, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I mean, and I'm, I'm going to just tell you, these young women singing it with tears streaming mean it exactly as much as my parents do, exactly as much with their full 100% of their capacity. They're saying, I will. But my parents, the, the line, I will put my life upon your love, has been through some complexity. They've lived through some things. They've discovered some things. Which one is right? Which one is better? Neither. Yes, they're both exactly wonderful. This is why we need the overlap of generations. Because I'm going to tell you what, if I need someone to help me download a PDF, I'm going to a 12-year-old. But if I want to talk to someone about the unfailing faithfulness of God, I'm going to probably go to my parents. And eventually, those 12-year-olds are going to be girls who have lived through stuff. And when they say it, it'll mean something entirely different. So John is a witness to the person of Jesus Christ, and he has lived through some stuff. He has seen his best friend die a cruel death and raised from the dead. He has seen all the other disciples by this time die cruel deaths as martyrs. He has watched the rise and fall of empires. He has watched the persecution of the church he has pastored a church, begun one, and pastored it. Uh, some historians believe he was dropped in a vat of boiling oil, and because he was so hideous to look at, they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. John saw so much, and so at the age of 90, he looks and he says, I'm going to write a gospel. Three others have been widely circulated for years, maybe decades by this point, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they see the world the same way. In fact, in some places, they're nearly identical. But John's Gospel is very different. <clears throat> it's not just different in content, it's different in tone. John's Gospel, I, I think the other three, it feels to me like they're writing their Gospels primarily to tell us who Jesus was and that he was who he said he was. So they prove his existence with the genealogy and they prove the prophecies that he fulfilled and, and, and they, they kind of just are, are trying to show this defensive thing that the, this is who Jesus was. But John is trying to tell us how Jesus was because he's watched heretics come and go. He's watched people forsake their faith, and he wants to say, we're getting him wrong. Here's how to get him right. And the message of John has traveled through a lot of complexity to come out on the other side. So we may read simple lines in stories like this, and they are anything but simple. They have been tried and tested in the furnace of affliction. They have been tried and tested in the cauldron of complexity. And so as we approach the text this morning, we approach it with humility and we approach it with a holy, sacred attitude of sobriety because we're about to sit at the feet of a man who lived a life that we haven't lived. We're about to listen to the story of someone who knows Jesus better than we know him. And so we want to listen to him this morning and we want to say, teach us what you know about the God we've chosen to serve. And so as we approach the text and the old man, John, we almost can hear his voice as he says, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. 
His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man or his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. <clears throat> After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Is this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself said, Hey, it's me. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. And so here is the first part of our story. And it starts as most stories do in the Gospels. And it starts as most good stories do in our lives. It starts with a problem. I mean, there aren't very many movies that are like, once upon a time, people met and lived happily and everything went well for them. The end. It just doesn't happen. The stories always have some sort of incident. And, and the problem here, the disciples notice, and the disciples would have known this blind man because he sits every day at the temple. This is not a, an occurrence for him. This is an occupation. This is what he does. He's not allowed in the temple. He can only sit outside the temple and beg and hope that someone has compassion on him. And so the disciples also have been raised going to the temple all the time, sometimes as much as every day. And they would have passed this man over and over again. And they know he was born blind. They know his backstory. So they bring this problem up to Jesus and they say, who sinned? This is the thing. We all, it, it, this question simmers in the background of so much of our theology. When something goes wrong in someone's life, it is so tempting to say, ah, who, whose fault is this? I used to do it all the time. I was the worst at this. If only they would have married better. If only they would have gone to a different church. If only they would stop smoking or start tithing or start doing something I wish they would do. Everything would be better in their life. I really had this idea, if, if we live our lives right, we can steer our ship all to avoid all the stormy sea. And then my husband was diagnosed with ALS and I had people start to come to me and say, if only he would go back into ministry, if only you would try this product, if only you would go to the prayer wall every single day, if only you would take communion every day, if only you would find a rule to follow, you could get yourself out of this mess. That is getting God wrong. And the disciples say, whose fault is this? Who sinned? And Jesus gives them pretty good news. He says, he didn't sin. God isn't making babies be born blind because they somehow sinned in the womb. That's good news. I mean, it sounds absurd, but they believed this. For generations, they believed this. And then he gives them even better news. God isn't making babies blind because their parents sinned because we would all be blind. Yes. And so he says that's not it. But then what he says it is raises a lot more questions. He says, sometimes God does things so that something better can come from it in the end. And that's a tricky statement. It's loaded with a lot of peril. You're not gonna understand why God did it. You're not gonna understand maybe even this side of heaven, what good came from it. 
But he's saying God is sovereign and sometimes we have to trust him with the results. My niece <clears throat> last week lost a baby and <clears throat> she, had, she had been dealing with a little thing inside of her belief system. She had heard some kind of pop wannabe philosopher say God is either all good but not all powerful or he is all powerful but not all good. Because the guy couldn't reconcile an all-powerful God letting bad things happen to people. And so that had been messing with her a little bit for a couple of years. And her biggest fear had been losing a baby. And so then she found out that she had lost her baby and the doctor sent her home to kind of wait it out. And she went home and she stood there and she said, I put my hands over my tummy and my baby who had died and I looked in the face of that doubt, and I said, with all my heart, you are all powerful, and you are all good. You are. Don't understand it. Don't have to. I just know it. Because now she looked in the face of her fear and said, I know that you're good and I know that you're powerful and I won't let that misconception about your character form the rest of my life. And so sometimes God does things that we don't understand. Is that any wonder? <clears throat> and then he heals this guy. And it's so fun to me that he heals him so well that people don't recognize him anymore. Like, who even are you? I mean, that's healed. That's really something. I think part of that might have been because of his location. They're used to him sitting and begging, and now he's standing up and looking at them eyeball to eyeball. Now he's in a completely different position. He's got a completely different posture because now he's been healed. And I think it's really interesting, this idea of what transformation does to us as believers but I myself and a lot of people that I've talked with in my career as a pastor and as a human have run into so many times where people are re reluctant to embrace healing or reluctant to pursue transformation because they're so worried it will cost them their place in the community that only recognizes them by their sickness. If I don't belong to the community of the broken, who will I belong to? Because I am telling you what, it is harder to belong to a community of the healed. That's intimidating. And so... The rest of the story says they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I wash and now I see. Now let's take a minute and look at this. Jesus has chosen to heal this man on the Sabbath. Would you like to think about it for a minute? When else could Jesus have chosen to heal this man? He sits there every day. Jesus and the disciples go to the temple most days. Why could Jesus not have healed him on a Tuesday? That would have been so much better for the man, right? Would have kept Jesus out of trouble. Also, he puts mud on his eye. It, he, and you know, all the times in the Gospels, we see Jesus heal people with just a word, and that's not breaking the law. But making mud out of spit is work. <laughs> and so that is breaking the law. Jesus intentionally makes this miracle, does this healing in a way that is going to cause some trouble. He is going to stir some trouble, not just for himself, but for the blind man. Because the blind man just got into the temple. 
They took him to the Pharisees. He just made his way into a community that he's been cast out of all his life. And now he's there and they are immediately mad. Nobody is happy that he's been healed. Have you ever been in that? Like my life's been transformed and no one is happy about it. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Oh, that's a new story in the church. Then they turned around to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. I feel like this blind man just wants us to go away. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. I mean, this is a mission right now. Is, you, is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? These are the absurd things we do when we're trying to defend a dumb intellectual position. We do stupid things. Let's just be real about that. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. These guys are stellar. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. The second time they summoned the man who had been blind, give glory to God by telling the truth, they said, we know this man is a sinner. This is really their offer. This is an offer to him. Give glory to God and you're a part of us. Say what we need you to say and you can belong in this cool community. But otherwise, a second time, uh, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. And here's the best sermon ever preached in the history of all time. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. They asked him, what did he do to you? How did, you open his, how did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> a little biblical sarcasm goes a long, wonderful way. <clears throat> then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. There's a little misconception inside the blind man. God listens to everyone. He doesn't always act in the way we ask, but he does listen. Um, Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Threw him out. He had like 20 minutes of belonging to his community. Now, let's be clear about what's happened here. Jesus has just fulfilled one of the most important prophecies in the history of the Jewish people. This is a prophecy they all would have known, they all would have quoted, they all would have said, they all would have believed. This is part of the grid they had for recognizing the Messiah when he came. It's Isaiah 42, and it's also about a dozen other times in the Old Testament. It says that the Messiah will come to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. 
These people have been watching and waiting for exactly this moment. This is the code. They have been waiting for someone to crack it and no one else has. There is no one in the Old Testament who ever opened the eyes of a blind man. And there is no other person in the New Testament who ever opened the blind man, eyes of a blind man. The blind guy is right here. No one else has ever opened the eyes of a blind man. This is who we've been waiting for. He's standing right in front of him and they literally throw him out. This is how powerful our misconceptions about God are. He threw him out. It is easy to miss who he is, what he does. <clears throat> They are clinging to an old and faulty idea about the father. The father will follow the rules. We don't heal people on a Sunday. That's not how it's done. I loved Jamie's testimony this morning because I'm listening to her thinking, she didn't follow the rules. She didn't go forward. And that was the rule. Come forward if you feel disconnected. And then Jesus is like, how about I just jump over that rule and get to her myself? I mean, that's just who he is. He, it, this isn't nearly as dependent on us as we think it is. And I love that. <clears throat> it's hard to unlearn what we thought we knew about God. It, about anything, really. About making pasta. It's, it's hard to unlearn what you think you know. You salt the water or not. But we have to. We have to be willing to unlearn in order to learn who he really is. That's why I think it's so important to constantly be holding our view of him up to the power of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, admitting to the Holy Spirit, I recognize that I was born blind to the truth of you. I recognize that I have spent my life begging for scraps outside your table and I want to see you as you really are. And so... Every morning, this has been my pursuit for the last two years of, as I've watched the church kind of devolve into this mud wrestling match of contention and division. And, and every morning when I sit with my Bible on my couch, I find a truth about Jesus from the Gospels and I hold it up to God and I ask one question and it's just one question and I'm going to give it to you to keep. And the question is this, does my view of you match what's true of you? Am I seeing you as you really are? Or is there something embedded in my heart that's keeping me from understanding your love? And worse than that, causing me to communicate it to someone else in a way that makes them feel like they are put out of a community or of the love of God. Because I'm telling you what, as I've studied this story, I look at those Pharisees and every time I get to that point where they look at the man and they say to him, you were steeped in sin, you don't get to lecture us, I am filled with loathing for them and judgment. And then I'm like, oh, shoot. I remember being a youth pastor. I remember having misconceptions about God that I gave to other people, that I said to teenagers I remember I'm, there are times I have had misconceptions about God that have come through my teaching. I'm sure of it. And so I want to always be looking at myself going, make my view of you true. Let me see the reality of who you are and do whatever it takes to get that to me. And so there are two things 
we can get from this story. There are like a million things we can find about God from this story. But there are two pieces of gold that I really love. And I want to look at them real quick and just look at them and say, do I believe this, this truth about who Jesus is? And is there a way that I could take this truth and integrate it into my soul, into my way, so that his way becomes my way? Wouldn't that be cool? So the first thing is, Jesus is attracted to the miserable and the marginalized. Jesus is always moving out to the brokenhearted. Jesus, we watch him, like there's this moment where he is teaching a crowd and the crowd is following him. And he's walking, walking, walking until they're so far away they have no access to food. He leads them out from everything they've known in order to help them see his father. He turns aside to the woman who clings to his robe, turns aside from the crowd. There's a place where he heals another blind guy and it says he leads him out of the village to do it. There's a time where he goes to an out-of-the-way well to meet with a woman who nobody else wants to talk to. Jesus is always moving toward the miserable and the marginalized. The end of this story, Jesus, it says Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. What? He worshiped outside of the church? Yep. Right there, he and Jesus had church on the Sabbath. I am in love with this Jesus, the one that heals someone in such a messy way that it gets them kicked out and then goes to the margins where they've been sent and meets them there. I have this theory. I don't know if it's right. I'll ask Jesus about it in heaven if I remember by the time I get to heaven. I have this theory that Jesus heals the guy in such a way that doesn't just give him sight. It also gives him freedom from a system he might have been trapped in had he not done it another way. Um, Jesus always moves to the miserable and marginalized. He shows up on the main stage. He shows up where the cool kids are. He shows up where the power brokers live. But he almost always shows up to disrupt it. Almost always. There's this moment in John 7 where it's the last and greatest day of the feast. And there's this thing that happens on that day where the priests lead a procession to the pool of Siloam, which is also this where the blind guy has been washed. They lead a procession to the pool of Siloam and they, they scoop up water and they pour it out on the altar. And it's reminiscent of Isaiah 12, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And it's a beautiful tradition and a beautiful idea. And in this moment, it says Jesus stands outside. And in the Greek, it says he screams, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. What a punk. I mean, can you even imagine if you're coming to church on Sunday and there's a guy standing outside the door saying, if anyone wants to know the truth about Jesus, come to me. Don't go in there. Don't go in there. I mean, he would meet with security quickly, yes? But Jesus is showing up to disrupt, to upend, to turn over tables and be like, I'm not who you think I am. I think a lot of people need to know Jesus is not as angry as they think he is. He's not as judgmental as they think he is. For me, sometimes I need to know he's not as nice as I think he is. Sometimes I need to be like, okay, Jesus has an opinion about my behavior right now. 
So Jesus is always showing up on the margins to bring healing, miraculous works, grace, compassion. And then he shows up in the mainstream to say, come on, see me differently. Number two, Jesus involves humankind in miracles as participants, recipients, or witnesses. Jesus, when he feeds the hungry, in a couple of accounts in the Gospels, he takes the bread, the little sack lunch, he blesses it, and then he gives it to the people. Nope. He takes the bread and he blesses it and he gives it to the disciples. And he says, you give this to the people. He lets them be a part of the miracle. In this one, he says to the blind man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. That's how you're going to participate in this miracle. We see him do this over and over again. He is always inviting us into what he's doing. And that is so cool. This isn't just a God we worship as powerless, impotent nothings. This is a God who invites us in. Inside of this story, Jesus says to the disciples, and it's cool because he's talking about a blind guy. He says, I am the light of the world. I love to think of John as an old man sitting at his table, getting ready to write his gospel, thinking, how should I start it? And I love to think of him remembering this moment when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. As John writes, in him was life, and this life was the light of men, and the darkness could not, could not, could not overcome it. And then Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says to the people listening, you are what? The light of the world. And the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus is not just the light. Jesus is the light giver. He is investing light into us. Something that we take to a world born blind. I, I don't know. I don't know why God doesn't let every baby live. I don't know. Why bad things happen to good people, I sure don't know why good things happen to bad people. I don't know these things. I only know I was blind, but now I see that he loves me and that nothing, nothing can ever take that from me and nothing can separate it from me. It's the truth <clears throat> of who he is. And so Jesus, light of the world, Goodness, grace, compassion, mercy, all that you are. We welcome you with open hearts to show us the truth of your love and to expose to us the places where we have you wrong. We respect the complexity of every life and what we've been through. But even in our oldest age, we're still going to be discovering places where we've got you wrong. So we ask that you will come into our lives and show us. Show us how to see you as you really are. Show us how to incorporate and integrate your way into our way so that we, we move toward the marginalized and the miserable. And so that we are recipients and witnesses of your miracle. We give you glory because all you are and all you do is beautiful. Together, we say that you are all powerful. And you are all good, always. Even in our confusion, 
We love and worship you in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, I'd love you to stand with me because I get to do a really exciting thing this morning. I get to give the benediction. And I know, I don't think Brad knows I'm doing this, so we're just going to get it done before he finds out. (laughs) So fun. I love a good benediction so much. Would you lift your hands with me and, and, and just with an open heart as we launch out into a new week. May you be filled with a holy hunger to know what's true of your wildly beautiful God. And may your vision and view of his goodness grow beyond your ability to contain or explain it in the name of the one who keeps bringing light, light, light to our blindness. Amen. Thanks so much for being here today, you guys. See you next week.